I'm Philip Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. Hi, Siri. Very happy that we get to co-host this episode with uh, Aryan. It's the second time uh, we do this uh, with a member of your GMAP cohort from um, almost 20 years ago, I think. And so I'll uh, hand over to you and I'd love if you could tell us a bit, like, how would you describe uh, Aryan and maybe even... Has it been 20 years since you last uh, saw him? Um, thank you, Philippe. It's, it's great to be back at the Coalface. Um, and I'm really happy to introduce um, you and our, and our audience to another member of my class, which is GMAP uh, 04, uh, Arjen Vandenberg. Um, and Arjen has a very distinguished career uh, in the Dutch Foreign Service. He has served tours in the US, in Trinidad and Tobago, and The Hague. And more recently, in the last 10 years, he's focused on Asia, working in Beijing, Tokyo, and is now the Dutch Consul General in Hong Kong and Macau, where he is halfway through a four-year posting. One of the fun things about having Arian in our class was that, as a working diplomat, he was able to give a reality check on all, all of our theoretical discussions about policy and negotiations. And um, it was, I, I saw Aryan uh, recently, actually, when he was in, in Tokyo, we had dinner one night. And then um, more recently, uh, when he and his husband, Dan, were on vacation in the south of France and uh, were able to meet here. And I'm really delighted to welcome him for our conversation today at the Coalface. Uh, Aryan, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to have you with us today. Thank you for having, uh, having me. Great fun to be here. So, Aryan, you were a member of GMAP 2004. We were one of the earlier classes. And I'd love it, you know, everyone who comes to GMAP comes with some interest in foreign policy and some background. And, and I think your career started quite young because you were already in the Dutch Foreign Service when you were at GMAP. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you first got into foreign policy and what you studied and what brought you there in the first place. Thanks, uh, Siri. Um, yeah, I was actually posted in our embassy in Trinidad and Tobago uh, when I participated in GMAP. And that already sets everybody off on a slight laugh because, well, you know, to be in such a tropical place with such beautiful beaches and then to choose to actually uh, delve into the books uh, for a full year um, or at, uh, at horrible hours of the day as well, actually, I, uh, I remember. Um, but it was also actually the reason why I um, chose to do a postgraduate program, um, simply because um, after three years of island life, I was ready for a little more of an um, academic challenge, so to say. Um, and um, so GMAP fitted in that quite perfectly because I was also supposed to stay um, at post as much as possible. So this distance learning, which of course now has become very much more the norm than it was then, um, was, uh, was a perfect solution. So I was very happy with, uh, with uh, GMAP in that sense. I joined the Foreign Service, I guess, uh, 12, uh, 14 years before GMAP. So in that sense, I was, uh, well, you know, middle management, uh, not quite um, a senior diplomat yet. Um, but um, yeah, I joined the Foreign Service in the early 90s. Um, very much because uh, international affairs was uh, what always interested me. And basically because I think um, I was born abroad and I was raised abroad for the first 12 years of my life. Very impactful years of your life, I guess. So by the time I did return to the Netherlands to finish high school and go to university, um, I was pretty much convinced that um, yeah, the only place I would be happy working was a place where there was some kind of international orientation. Um, they always told me never bet only on joining the foreign service because that is a sure way not to get in. Um, but it was always for me one of the options I had to always leave open um, as, uh, as a career step. Um, but I did ultimately also look in international business. Because you, you were you were born in Suriname, is that is that? Uh... I was born in I was born in the Caribbean. Yeah, I was born in Suriname uh, way back when it was still a colony. Can you share a bit how it was like, actually? Uh, no, well, I can share you what it was like, but not because I lived there for a very long time, uh, because my parents moved back to the Netherlands for a short time 
in uh, when I was like two and a half years old. Um, so I have no real memories uh, of Suriname then. Uh, but I do very uh, well remember that when I was in Trinidad and Tobago, obviously right around the corner from Suriname, uh, we did visit and, um, uh, and obviously met up with a lot of people that my parents knew from the time when they actually lived there in the 60s. And that was great fun. Um, uh, but it was also very telling that my mother kept commenting that it seemed like nothing had changed. <laughs> so here you are, um, you know, 20 years on almost, and uh, the country has not changed, um, which was sort of an indictment of what was going on there politically. But nonetheless, the people were as sweet as they, as they always were. And the country is as beautiful as it always was. But yeah, uh, not much had changed. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm a tropical child. Um, um, the weather in the Netherlands doesn't uh, really uh, fit me very well. Uh, no, but uh, I always, um, because we traveled around quite a bit and lived in interesting places, South Africa, Germany, Bolivia, very different places too. Um, um, yeah, I, I always thought to myself already in high school, I would definitely like to study something that will give me a job with, that will also give me the opportunity to live and work uh, abroad. And foreign affairs was always there as, as, as an option. So in the early 90s, I applied. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I happened to get in. Very much felt like I happened to get in because <laughs> in the last round of, um, of the recruitment, um, you actually meet all your real competition. So there's like 25 people left um, and you all get together because you have to do these group things. Um, and only, you know, only 12 will survive. And of course you start talking to each other during the coffee breaks or whatever. And, um, I felt very small. I remember because everybody <laughs> had, I don't know, worked for NGOs in Africa and, and, and worked for, I don't know, all kinds of really, really interesting stuff. And all I had done was, well, yes, I had a youth abroad, then went on to study law, international law. How original is that when you want to join the foreign service? Um, and not much else, actually. So I was very, actually quite surprised when I did get it. <laughs> um, and did you have a, you've spent, you know, a lot of your time recently in, in Asia. Was, um, was that sort of an early focus you've also I know you've also done security studies and that that's been kind of an area that's been really interesting for you is um you know where did where did those interests come from and are they you know is it still something that you're kind of focused on yeah so um the Dutch foreign service is actually uh, too small for us all to be real specialists in either topics or or, or regions um so so that can sort of change along the way um, and you should never be too surprised when all of a sudden they decide to, you know, assign you to a, uh, a mission um, that has nothing to do with your earlier interests or where you've worked before. Um, so I was not very surprised that um, early on I was um, asked um, to do more of this um, security policy side of things. So I worked at the security policy department and, for example, the, the, the then still budding uh, common and security uh, policy of the EU um, and worked with NATO quite a bit uh, and the OSCE in Vienna, which was also great fun. Um, so, yeah, built up my profile uh, in that field also because just before I joined the Foreign Service, I actually still had to do my military duty, um, so conscription, um, and did that with the uh, naval staff um, 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 in The Hague, um, dealing with disarmament issues, actually, which was uh, very interesting, and which actually already brought me for all kinds of work meetings to the ministry at the time. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my profile was slightly more uh, about security policy than anything else. So I was also very comfortable um, uh, working in those fields um, uh, when I uh, when when I joined the security policy department, um, but then at some point, yeah, um, you know uh, the way it works. Every September, the list is published with positions that you can apply for for the for the next summer, and um, um, Beijing was on that list. And uh, together with my then partner, we decided, yeah, let's put that on there. That sounds like a very exciting place to go. Um, and we ended up going there. So um, that was the start of my Asia adventure, so to say, which lasts till today. What year was that? that? Be... What year did you go to China? So that was in 2008. 
right after the Olympics, um, which was a pity, but uh, and yeah, that's just how it works. So I, I came in the fall of uh, 2008 and, and worked there for four years uh, and lived there for four years, which was um, wonderful. Very, I mean, those were the booming years of, of, of China and, and Beijing, especially. I mean, you know, new buildings were being finished each and every day, so to say. Anything went. Everybody was coming in to start up projects and do things. It was amazing. Um, and of course, um, um, I was head of the political section at the embassy. So also in charge of just monitoring the political developments within China, but also in relation to the near neighborhood and Europe. Um, and very much, you know, the also this idea that, uh, oh, but of course, you know, look around you. It, China cannot be uh, but become more like us. And uh, so very much those rose-colored glasses on, like, no, 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 they'll, they'll, they'll adopt all of that Western-style <laughs> stuff that we are so used to and we all believe in so strongly. Um, and, of course, you know, I left in 2012, uh, and a year later, Xi Jinping comes in, and, uh, well, the rest is history, so to say. Um, uh, but, it was, yeah, for me, actually, professionally, it's quite interesting to see how you can... Um, uh, well, how, basically how limited your, your vision can be. Huh? Um, I mean, you obviously try to look forward and try to analyze developments that you see uh, looking forward and what they would mean for your own country's policy uh, options. Um, but yeah, you know, you get taken up by everybody's idea that, you know, but yeah, what alternative to liberal democracy is there really? Um, you cannot but take people's wants and needs and rights and freedoms into account when you want to fully develop uh, a nation and, and, and seem to be, and there was nothing, well, there was a lot that was already telling us that you're, you know, you're way off on that, but you just didn't, you couldn't see it uh, or we didn't want to see it or whatever it was, but uh, yeah, the reporting was still, you know, lots of trouble and yes, the human rights situation is dire and we need to keep investing in it, but we also see glimmers of hopes and things, you know, things like that. Uh, and this, this this very strong belief that our own system was the only viable system in the long run. Mm. So you kept playing into that your own narrative in that sense. It's it so sounds like you've given a lot of thought to that period of time and why you were caught up in a certain way of thinking. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, because I'm still in this region, and once again back in China here in Hong Kong, which of course gives you a slightly different perspective again on what's happening in China. Um, yeah, you wonder, yeah, um, it makes you, uh, well, I mean, Beijing was very um, important for me also, being a Dutch diplomat, uh, you know, we, well, we tend to be slightly bigger than we really are. Uh, but in Beijing, you're really small. Um, and uh, Beijing at the time, I mean, it's changed now, but at the time actually had a relatively small uh, foreign service itself. Um, and the foreign ministry was not well, um, uh, well manned. So, um, uh, they had to really pick and choose their, their interlocutors and their counterparts. And those were obviously the bigger ones, you know, so they, the Germans and the French and the, and the, and the British then still for us, um, and far less, you know, the Netherlands, yeah, Netherlands, you know, they knew everything about that was, that makes the Netherlands big and well known in the world. Uh, but you know, when it comes to polit political stuff, they wanted to have the discourse with the, uh, with the with the big ones, the Germans and the French. They weren't they weren't like dying for Dutch cheese or anything. With it. you, you didn't have a lot of leverage there. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, they would eat the Dutch cheese anyway, you know. But uh, and and the Dutch cheesemakers found their way. <laughs> to, <laughs> they found their the way into country. China. They didn't need us for that. But right. you know, we we had positions on disarmament um, um, uh, and, 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 and topics like that, you know. So the the bigger topics, so to say. Um, uh, but yeah, and if I would get instructions from The Hague to maybe propose this or talk to them about that, I would have a hard time getting in mm. um, and they would, um, uh, they would have to, um, they would only get us together as a Benelux maybe or um, uh, in, a, in a larger framework, so to say. So the EU was already then for us as a smaller member state incredibly important because the EU had leverage. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And I wonder, Arian, um, you know, you're talking about 
the Netherlands as sort of a small actor on a bigger stage. And I'm, I'm curious how that also works personally. You know, you're, mm. as a diplomat, you're part of a, a you know, a sort of machine of, of diplomacy. And I remember you always seeming very, you know, glamorous and, and you're working in embassies. And I think people have, who don't know a lot about diplomacy, have this idea of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, very glamorous side of, of diplomacy and embassy parties and, you know, black tie affairs and, you know, big pressured negotiations and and that's what you think you know life is as a diplomat and i know from my you know short experience with the state department you're just sort of a cog in a wheel and you know you're you i i felt very much like um like my contribution didn't matter at all so i'm i'm really curious if you could talk more about how that feels personally you know to be part of that and and in a way playing a role and filling a space that, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of self-expression in and maybe you don't feel the kind of progress that you might like to feel. Yeah. Um, so, gosh, um, where to start on this one? Um, um, I think um, I'm, I'm lucky to be working for the Dutch Foreign Service because um, we do punch above our weight. Um, and, um, we do so because, um, economically speaking, the Netherlands is, you know, top 20, uh, largest economies in the world. So we have interests everywhere across the globe in combination with a very rich history in also in the field of trade, especially, uh, makes that we've always had a, a huge interest in, in, in being part of, so to say, international affairs, international relations. Uh, so we've always invested in a strong uh, foreign service uh, to make sure that, um, you know, the political side of, of, of us being able to, to trade freely, as freely as possible, and across the globe as much as possible, uh, made that we, um, yeah, that we put a lot of energy uh, also in, in, in having a lot of experts on board, so to say, to, um, uh, to play along with the big players. And um, we've been actually fairly successful in this, and partly also because I think uh, we've been always been able to promote ourselves as the um, sort of the, um, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the 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 country that can build bridges, um, the uh, the country that um, you know we 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 are harmless basically. Uh, there's little harm we can do. So you know, if you have to, uh, need to have an in, uh, someone, a mediator, so to say, between the big players, use the Dutch because they know what they're talking about. Um, uh, but they're harmless because you know they're not going to promote one or the other position too strongly. Um, and that makes that I've always felt that I've done relevant work. But what also helps is the uh, is is the realization pretty quickly in your career, I think, that um, um, the, 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 the big picture is important and the big projects are important, uh, but the little things that you can do matter also. Um, and I, I, I strongly remember that when I applied for the Foreign Service, it says, you know, if you enjoy working behind the scenes, uh, uh, you know, if you work tinker at what's behind the headlines in the newspaper, if you enjoy doing that, um, then the foreign service would be the right place to be. If you want to be in the spotlight uh, all the time, then you're going to yeah, be in for a disappointment. Um, and I guess um, I am, yeah, I am not the kind of person that wants to stand on a podium all the time and, um, uh, and, and, and you know, shout things out. Um, but quickly also notice that there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that's really important for the end results that others then obviously uh, get to show off with. Um, uh, but I've always felt, yeah, happy and satisfied in, 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 in doing that. And that, that goes from, you know, just basically, gosh, um, 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 being part of the, the writing team for proposals that uh, your minister ends up presenting in the UN uh, General Assembly or one of the other councils or committees that you have there uh, on disarmament, for example, um, and that you've been part of the, you know, working level discussions that made those proposals, 
um, uh, and that you said that, that you can be happy to see that your minister presents them and that other countries and all of a sudden at ministerial level say, hey, that's actually a great idea. Let's work on this further. Uh, and that you can then, you know, it comes back to you and that you can then actually uh, uh, elaborate on, on, on that proposal. Um, and currently where I am now in, in Hong Kong, um, it's also very satisfying, actually, to even though you also have to sometimes um, disappoint the Dutch citizens, but it also also is very satisfying that sometimes you can actually help them with very little things like just, uh, you know, telling them that, uh, yes, you know, we, ha we also have heard of instances where children and parents are separated uh, when one of them um, tests po positive for COVID and, and, and here they still have this policy whereby, you know, people who test positive need to go to hospital uh, to be isolated. Um, but, you know, we very much feel that you can't separate children and, and, and parents um, and that you can just tell them, well, you know, we actually do call the uh, relevant authorities here and, and, and alert them to the fact that this is an issue and that we actually support these people who make this an issue for the simple reason that we don't believe it's the right way uh, to handle um, things like that. And then when you actually see that the government changes tack on that and get, becomes a little more flexible about that, yeah, that's, that's a small win, but an important win for many people. Um, and, and, and that to me is, is satisfying enough. Mm. Um. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, sometimes it's just making a difference for one person. You know, maybe maybe that day you're not making a difference in, in the, the, the world, you know, world affairs. But if you make a difference for, you know, that one person, that can be incredibly satisfying. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm also curious how um, personally it is to be a diplomat. You know, you're moving every few years. You're always kind of, you know, there isn't necessarily a home base in the same way. How for, 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 you know, some of our listeners might be considering joining the Foreign Service and thinking about this as a career. How, how is that for you personally? And, and, you know, do you feel like the upsides weigh out the downsides? And, you know, I'm curious to hear more about that. Yes. Um, actually, um, yeah, I love my job. So I, am, I'm, I still feel very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. Uh, and yes, under the... Um, realization that it means I have to change jobs every approximately four years. Uh, but I think actually that's, that's, I mean, how great is it to just have the same employer all the time, but the employer tells you now it's time to do something different. Yeah. Um, and you don't really have to, I mean, it's a very lazy uh, position, obviously, but, uh, uh, but it's, it, I, I love the fact that I'm actually, um, uh, motivated by my own employer to think about a next step in my career every four uh, to six years. And, um, and that change of, 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 of yeah, tasks is actually great fun. There's a great difference also between, uh, and that actually relates to, actually to the earlier question also, there's a difference though with what you do on a, uh, on a mission and what you do at the headquarters in The Hague. Uh, because actually policy, of course, is made in The Hague and the missions are there to execute policy and inform headquarters so they can make new or adapt policy. Um, um, but also, so that, that, you know, that change between being on mission and then coming back to The Hague um, is also very uh, energizing as far as I'm, uh, I'm concerned. Um, so I've always enjoyed this idea that, you know, every, every four to six years, I am changing context completely. Um, and taking on new tasks, working with new people in a completely new environment, uh, possibly, uh, and making it work. Um, now that sounds, that's, that's professionally great fun. Uh, and I don't think too difficult for people to imagine that that would be fun. On the personal level, um, um, it's not that easy, uh, because yes, it does absolutely mean that you have to uproot yourself and your family every so many years to start over somewhere else. And for me, it's very easy because my employer has already given me a brief for my next four years. Um, so I just, you know, you go somewhere and you can basically go to the office the next day and start up. Uh, but for your family, uh, it's a completely different thing. Um, so, I, but I, yeah, I've been lucky to have been supported by two husbands who um, uh, have um, always joined me in, in every next mission. Um, uh, sometimes being able to take along whatever they were doing, 
um, and just continuing uh, in the new uh, uh, in the new city, uh, and sometimes actually really just giving up what they were doing before and then reinventing themselves abroad. My first husband um, was a pianist, so he was he was in, in the in, in the art scene. Um, and uh, when we lived in Trinidad and Tobago, he did wonderful stuff together with the British artist there, um, um, where he actually brought music and painting uh, together. And we had they did wonderful events. Uh, and the thing and, and it enriched my professional life. I mean, it was fun because those were fun people to be with, so they became our friends as well. But um, uh, they were also fun people to have in my network because uh, these were all artists or or, or benefactors. Who you know, born and raised, and 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 made it in Trinidad, uh, but sometimes had a completely different perspective on the developments in yes. Trinidad than I was getting from talking just with you right. know all the government people. Yeah. But um, and my current uh, husband, he is um, he's a, he's a, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's his own business. Um, it's all done digitally. Um, the only problem, problem, challenge is that there's a time difference between his clients in the Netherlands and him being here. Um, but it, it sometimes is also an advantage. And, um, uh, and he's very happy doing it. Um, it's uh, probably not for everybody, but it's, um, um, yeah, it, it works for him. So I've been very lucky um, uh, in that sense. Sh schlepping children around the world um, thank God for international uh, programs that, you know, that, that are offered by all these different schools. And every family has these different dynamics going on at the same time, which make for pretty exciting times, I can imagine, in, uh, in many uh, families where children are, um, you know, need to move along um, as well. And often have very little to say as to, you know, where they're going and why they're going there. You know, as a, as a the husband and wife or husband and husband or wife and wife, you know, they... Well, yeah, they have a very deep conversation about the next, whatever the next destination is going to be. Um, um, and still, it's always a badly informed choice you ultimately make, because uh, it really depends on where you land and how you land and, and, and what those first connections you make yeah. are all about and how they work out. And you never know exactly what's going to happen in that place, right? Because events, exactly. events can, can uh, intercede and... Yeah, take COVID for example. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, no. So Hong Kong um, is um, is also known. I mean, supposedly a very vibrant city. So that's not happening right now. Uh, but it's also very much a hub for the region. So every, you know, everybody told us, "Oh, come to Hong Kong. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, you go on weekend trips to everywhere." Um, and we haven't been anywhere for the last year and a half since we've been here. So we haven't even been to Macau because you can't get in without. Uh, actually having to do quarantine first so yeah it's uh, that's um, um yeah that that plays into it as well obviously uh, you can never know exactly what it's like until you're there and actually start doing whatever it is you intend to do yeah no and i'm you know i think what's what's interesting is you know because you've had such an international life um you know, and though I think a lot of our listeners as well, you, you get a different perspective, right? You get to kind of understand your values and, and your upbringing, but also you see that in the scope of the larger picture. And I'm curious particularly how you might look at that in relation to Asia, particularly in, in you know, vis-a-vis European values and what you've kind of learned. And are there things, are there lessons that you've learned that you apply to your own development or has it affected how you see the world in any way now? Yes. Very good question, actually. Um, because um, um, what I'm more and more aware of is actually that I, of course, also represent a country um, that has a whole set of uh, almost want to say, you know, has a manual that goes with it. Um, the Dutch behave a certain way, believe in certain values, and, uh, um, um, uh, but act in a certain way. And, 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 and um, when you live abroad as a diplomat, which means that you are always open to other influences and other ways of looking at life, um, it's sometimes not that easy to look back at where you're coming from uh, and then you know, still be positive about where you're coming from. Because sometimes I get, you know, I can be quite annoyed about how 
Uh, for example, um, the Dutch always seem very happy-go-lucky and, and, and fun-loving and, and outgoing people. Uh, but actually for foreigners to make it work for themselves in the Netherlands is not that easy because we're pretty closed up. Um, so yes, we, we may be, you know, we're, we're open uh, in the street, um, but we're very closed behind our front doors. And for foreigners to actually make their ways uh, into the living rooms of Dutch people is incredibly difficult, which means that it can feel yeah, very lonely, I can imagine. Um, uh, even though there's lots of fun stuff to do. Um, um, and I had that with my very, f my first husband who was American, who did his damnedest to become Dutch, uh, uh, taught himself Dutch, but then of course always had that American accent, uh, um, that he couldn't get rid of when he spoke Dutch. And then the Dutch would always, you know, immediately switch to English. Uh, and they just wouldn't give him the chance to just continue on in his, you know, uh, accented Dutch uh, <laughs> to order whatever he was ordering or doing whatever he was doing. And that frustrated him enormously. And he actually once told me, he says, I think you do that on purpose in the Netherlands. I think the Dutch are very much about one of the defining factors of us Dutch is that we speak Dutch and uh, only the Dutch get to speak Dutch. Uh, and uh, the foreigners shall always be, you know, second ring, so to say, because we will, we can speak English and that's how we will communicate uh, with them. And that set me thinking like, wow, yeah. And there's actually a truth to that because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it just ultimately isn't. And even for me now, and this is, this is the lot of the, of the, 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 yeah, the, the traveling Dutchman, so to say, is that of course I'm a little uprooted myself. I'm, um, uh, because I am living abroad. I need to make it work abroad. So I take on all of this other stuff from other cultures and uh, places. Uh, and take part of it back with me to the Netherlands and then find that all of a sudden there's no interest in the Netherlands for what I'm doing or where I'm coming from. Um, and, and the typical example is that all of us always complain about the fact that the Dutch live by the calendar. So there's no way, we're, and we would think we're spontaneous, but we're not. When it comes to actually making appointments where, you know, sometimes you call people up and say, shall we meet up? And they're, yes, we shall. Um, and so do you have time in six weeks? <laughs> and you're like, what, six weeks? No, what about coming weekend? You know, let's just, uh, no, 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 can't do this weekend. We have to, you know, we're doing this and we're doing that. And they'll give you a whole lost list of things that they're already doing. So they're very busy people. So they always have to make this appointment way ahead of time, which is something that from living so, having lived abroad so much, I don't, I don't have that at all. Um, so that's always one of those, you know, the, the, you get confronted with that, that very Dutch attitude and you're like, come on, you guys, you know, let's, uh, let's be a little more spontaneous about how we uh, get together and, and, and meet up. Yeah. Because I, I, I just wanted to add a quick thing, because I, I lived in the Netherlands for two and a half years. Um, and, and then after that moved to Southeast Asia and there's some, something that, that I, that struck me with, with living in, in Netherlands was how unfiltered communication was where where it was very much like a, 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 an attempt at expressing what was going on in the in in the person in a, in a from their point of reference and and never even thinking that it was um maybe they had a responsibility in trying to figure out how, how what they were saying were received was received and interpreted and and emotions that may come out of that and then straight after that experience in the Netherlands, I worked in, in, um, in Southeast Asia, um, still with, I had quite a lot of Dutch colleagues in, in Southeast Asia. And it was fascinating to observe the contortions that they were forced to having to make to be able to work locally in a culture which is um, the, almost the opposite from a, a, lot, a lot of things remain unsaid. There was a lot of considerations for face, for emotions of the other. Um, and and uh, I, I mean I don't. It, the, 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 my Dutch colleagues became a lot a lot more a lot nicer <laughs> through that process. <laughs> but I was curious to ask how, how because you're a Dutch person, so it's, it's me as a foreigner trying to make sense of it. But I was I was keen, given you you grew up uh, outside and you you straddled both worlds. Uh, help me out. Help me figure that one out, please. Well, actually, I, I have a hard time figuring it out myself, honestly, because so I'm trying to tell you that um, it's hard for me to uh, to be a good Dutchman uh, because I think um, uh, I'm much more I've taken on 
all of this from abroad much more than your average Dutchman in the Netherlands has. And at the same time, I'm struggling with the, the, what you're describing about, you know, the Dutch in Singapore, I'm struggling with here in Hong Kong as well. Um, uh, so I find them incredibly uh, yeah, circumspicious about everything. They never tell you, give you, you know, a straight answer. Um, it's always about, yeah, saving face, you know, um, and it drives me nuts. So I've discovered that actually I'm, I am, I'm probably still very Dutch. And the <laughs> older I get, I think a couple of those, those, those Dutch features in me have only become stronger. Um, because when it comes to openness, uh, being, which is translated as being direct, um, you, you know, you, yeah, we give it to you straight. Um, honestly, I think that is such an incredibly valuable part of being Dutch. I've really come to appreciate it because um, the office politics are the result of always having to keep a safe face in the uh, Asian context. And this is both in China and I lived in Japan as well. And here in Hong Kong is just, I don't know why people do this to themselves, you know, why not have it out? <laughs> um, and yes, sometimes there's friction and sometimes you have, well, an almost fight because obviously you need to stay polite at all times. Um, but why not have differences come out and be spoken about? Because that's the only way you can actually work on it becoming better. Because if you don't, then it's just going to just sort of sit there and, and, and just do bad stuff ultimately. And I'm noticing this in my own office, you know, also, even though these are Hong Kong Chinese Dutch people, so they've all actually lived in the Netherlands, so know what the Netherlands is about. And on certain aspects, they can be horribly direct, um, um, uh, and maybe because I am too, uh, but sometimes they just, you know, I, I will sit with them and only then they will come up with certain issues that are playing between colleagues. And I'm like, but why, why is this so underground, you know, in Holland, of course, we have no problem telling each other, you're an idiot, you know, um, uh, we should be going, uh, you know, this way and not that way. Um, and then the other one will, uh, you know, vehemently disagree. No, no, no. This, my way is the best way. And, you know, work towards a compromise there. But here, uh, yeah, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So the Dutch are, um, yeah, we're just very open and, uh, and direct. And I've come to appreciate that. Part of the <laughs> Dutch, to be very honest. Um, uh, because also, but honestly, because uh, first of all, um, it's funny to see how, uh, you obviously are direct without even knowing it. So even my colleagues here within the EU and outside of that, um, all diplomats, uh, even they will say, Aryan, you can be very direct. And we appreciate how direct you can sometimes be because, you know, there is an issue and you know how to put it in words and put it on the table for us to have a discussion about but I, it. I think, you know, that that's one of the keys to being a successful diplomat, right, is to be able to communicate something important in a way that um, that everyone can hear, right? Because I think this is um, uh, you know using using you know diplomacy, like um, finding ways to um, to address whatever the thing is, um, but do it in a way that people can can accept it, you know, or or be open to discuss it. So it, yes, it's a real talent. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Well, but but the trap for the diplomat is always that you want to, um, uh, you do take into account the other side so much that the message gets lost uh, because you're constantly thinking, oh, but I, you know, yes, there's a message I need to sell, but I can't hurt the other person or I need to make him feel comfortable about it, even though it's not the good message or whatever it may be. And if you get stuck in trying to figure out how your message will actually land on the other side, then um, then the message doesn't get you know conveyed at all. Um, and personally, I've learned, um, and yes, sometimes I may be direct, and some people will tell me, Aryan, you know, maybe you could have been a little more suave about uh, uh, about the message. Uh, but at the same time, um, in general, um, I try to be a nice person. So the image I, I, I try to project or to cultivate is that of a, a, a you know a nice guy. Um, and as long as you have that image, you can actually get a lot done by just being direct because then they understand it's coming from a good place and not from someone who's just trying to make, <laughs> get a message across, you know? So it's, it's, you have to work both sides. Do you think that's a little analogous to, 
to the Netherlands role in the world? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, you never know. Um, yeah, um, well, actually, yeah, I think the Dutch um, innately have this, 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 this need um, to be seen and to be liked. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not... Um, um, but kind of, but able to use that to, to push through some other, you know, some correct. other agendas. Well, that, but that would be for people uh, in the foreign service, for example, or in international business. Um, um, if you're dealing with just the Dutch people, I mean, they want to be uh, nice, uh, but the message still remains very important. So if that hurts, that's tough luck on you uh, and we can fix it later. So yeah, that's um, that's how it would work with the Dutch them, uh, themselves. But yeah, so it's yeah, so it's funny. Yeah, so I, so every time I go back to the Netherlands, I I, I feel a little like a stranger in my own uh, country, um, and I adapt quite quickly. It's not the problem. It's not like it's all new or different or oh wow, what what happened here? But it's it, it does always take a little getting used to um, again. And at the same time, you know, when I'm abroad, I keep constantly being confronted with the fact, ah, but you're obviously a Dutch diplomat because, you know, you're direct and open and, you know, um, yeah. So it's, um, it's funny how that works. Do you feel constrained in, you know, obviously you're in, you're in Hong Kong and, and, you know, there, there's some, uh, there's a lot of sensitivity that has to be looked at there. In, you know, in, in working as a diplomat, how much of what your personal views are in a situation do you have to kind of put aside in order to, to carry the message of your government? Yeah, that's a very good question, too. Um, feel con- I, I am constrained. I think that's just a fact of life. And it's the, it's the you know, it comes with the job, so to say. Um, um, so, yes, I always have to be... Um, aware of, of, of what it is I'm saying um, and how that will be perceived by the other side. Um, and, um, and at the same time, um, you know, being interested in foreign or international relations, you, you know, you just, you, you keep, you keep up with the news, so to say, and you try to have a well-formed, own opinion about what's going on in the world. So you not, you know, you try to not just stay in your own little information bubble that feeds you only the, the, the same message all the time, but you try to, you know, make sure that you have a well-informed opinion about the uh, developments. And that helps um, actually um, in understanding why also when I am sent out on instruction to, you know, to convey a message or do something, um, that I, I I have to hold back on certain opinions that I may have um, to get to you know an, an, a result that I ultimately support and understand um, uh, because I'm well informed. So um, uh, yes, it's I, 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 so I am constrained, but I don't feel too constrained. It doesn't it doesn't frustrate me that at the, uh, at times I can't. Uh, fully say what uh, what I personally mean. Also, because I think, um, I mean, I have very strong opinions. Uh, I think my friends will tell you. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I also know how to just keep my mouth shut uh, on certain issues. Also, a, a, a good diplomatic somehow. trait. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think there's... Um, you know, again, hopefully some, some young people who might be considering foreign service listening, um, you know, would you, what advice might you have for, for someone considering the foreign service in their own country? Um, you know, is it, uh, what things should they, you know, um, be ready for and what things should they, can they look forward to? And, you know, what, what do you think? And, and, you know, I think it's it would be interesting to hear you reflect a little bit about you know now you've been more than twenty some years in in your in your career. Um, what what do you think you've gained from that? And and maybe a little bit you know where do you think um, you know the future might? Because you're still a young man, you've still got still got lots of time <laughs> ahead of you. Um, you know how how do you see? Only because the pension uh, age kept kept keeps being pushed backwards but okay yeah <laughs> um but you know you're you're consul general in hong kong and um you know are, are there other are there other things that that would be really interesting for you going forward yeah um 
So I think if you really are interested in world politics and international relations, and you can be a specialist in, you know, something, uh, transatlantic relations or China-Japan relations or whatever it may be, um, that doesn't matter because that, um, but as long as you have an interest for those dynamics in international relations, I think for the foreign service is a really great uh, job uh, to be in or, or to have. Um, uh, as long as, once again, I think you have to be cognizant of the fact, maybe depending on where you're from. I mean, if you join the, the US Foreign Service or the UK Foreign Service or the French Foreign Service, I mean, you know, those countries have real clout and have real interests uh, that they must defend uh, at all times um, um, while building, obviously, coalitions with countries like the Netherlands. But um, um, uh, but if you if if you like of or don't mind being you know at the working level, um, the the person who helps prepare uh, and helps uh, prepare change or or or, or a new policy. Um, then it's great to do because it's very hands-on and, and I love reading the newspaper and then coming across a headline that talks about a topic that I can say, oh, wait a minute, but I worked on this. Um, I know about this and I actually know this person too, you know, uh, because I worked with them. Um, um, yeah, not necessarily making yourself smaller than you need to be because obviously everybody can also <laughs> make a big career in foreign service. Uh, but if you enjoy that sort of hand work, so to say, then I think uh, the Foreign Service is great so kind fun. Of, you should kind be of very being part of the headlines, but not not with your name in the big type. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, you should be. Um, I. But maybe that's. Well, no. I think for um, a lot of foreign services have that problem is that you're not always in full control of your own career. So yes, you will. Um, at some point, you know, do something that you never signed up for, never thought that you, and I never, honestly, I never thought I would become an Asia special, a specialist. Um, uh, the security part side I understood, and I definitely understand that there's an, uh, especially a China perspective to that. Um, um, but I never thought that I would, you know, spend so much time in and with Asia. Uh, but I'm, I think it's great. Uh, I'm very happy I, I did because let's be honest, this is Asia's uh, century. So um, I think I'm definitely in the right spot uh, for the real big changes in the world. Um, but um, uh, but you have to be yeah you have to be flexible in that res uh, respect, and that flexibility also pertains to your moving around, um, and that is I think increasingly where it's. Uh, hard for young people to join foreign services is that, you know, um, if you um, have a partner, they have their own career. Um, and how do you reconcile your career with theirs is an incredibly, it's, for all foreign services is a huge issue. Um, also, because unfortunately, um, um, the, the way the foreign services are uh, still treated in many countries makes them a little archaic. Uh, which means that, for example, in many countries, partners can't work. So even if there were there were, was a job, you can't just go and apply for the job because you're well, you're the partner of the diplomat, and the diplomat is not supposed to have a partner that works. Um, uh, so th those things can be very frustrating and, uh, has, and very difficult. Has there ever been an issue with um, having a same-sex partner in in the work that you or the places that you've worked or or within the Dutch Foreign Service? Um, no, well, not within the Dutch Foreign Service, actually. Um, um, that's always been, it's been very, I actually came out while I was in the Foreign Service, um, very early on in the Foreign Service, um, and, um, um, and was very, well, obviously surprised, but also very happy that it was, turned out not to be a problem. I mean, there's a whole discussion to be had about the, why is it that people need to come out, but, um, you know, in, when in the 90s, that was definitely what had to happen. You had to come out. And that turned out to be, uh, professionally speaking, a very uh, simple process. And, um, and I've never in my uh, career felt that it's hindered me in any way. Um, uh, maybe in the very beginning, I was a little, I held myself a little back about being too open about it. Uh, but I think also the times definitely have changed in that, re uh, in that respect. And now, it's just, for me, it's not an issue. Everybody knows I'm gay. Everybody knows I have a, has a, have a husband. 
Um, if they come here and they have an event here, they'll have to meet my husband as well. I will acknowledge him uh, at all times. Um, he's luckily flexible enough that sometimes, you know, when there's these official functions um, um, where he's then not invited to because he's uh, he's my husband and they don't recognize husbands, for example, here in Hong Kong, that he's like, well, you know, who cares? It's a work event anyway. You go and have fun um, or no fun, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and I'm fine with that. Um, so... Um, um, and I've, and it's been different in, in different places. I mean, when I went to Trinidad and Tobago, it was a huge, well, huge. it was an issue because my, uh, my partner at the time, uh, would, was not able to get a regular, um, permit, residency permit. So he was there as a constant tourist, um, which, um, is okay for a while. And then it starts getting a little annoying, um, because, especially because his, artistic career sort of actually happened in Trinidad, but it wasn't, you know, on, on the, on the official side, it was like, but you're a tourist here, so we can kick you out anytime we want to, because you're not supposed to be doing what you're doing. And you're definitely not supposed to be overstaying those continuous three months that you're allowed to stay here. Um, so that, and that creates tension in any relationship. So that wasn't always easy. We have to be very honest that, unfortunately, um, uh, the, the situation of the, the LGBTIQ plus community in, in many countries is not getting better, but actually getting worse. Um, and that reflects on the ability of us also to be going places, so to say. Uh, and of course, you know, um, for us, it's an important uh, human rights issue anyway. So we try to promote um, uh, those issues as well. I mean, it's interesting in our in our study at uh, you know of, of law and diplomacy at Fletcher. Um, you know these these kind of personal issues. I think you know have a big role in how successful you are, or how you know how your fam you know how you can actually perform your job. And it's kind of interesting that we maybe don't talk more about you know that side of things. Um, but I'm interested, you know, just to kind of you know to kind of wrap things up. Um, how you reflect on your GMAP experience now that it's been uh, almost 20 years since we graduated, um, you know, how, how it was important for you then and, and how, it's, you know, how, it, how it still plays a, a role in, in what you're doing today? Yes. Um, I thought it was just a wonderful experience, honestly. Just this, um, the, the fact that after... In my case, I think 12 years of professional life, I was sort of allowed to step back into the academic world, so to say, where you could have a discussion for the sake of a discussion and where you could really take your time to delve into real issues um, of the time of the day uh, and to sharpen your skills also on leadership and management and finance, which was the subject I hated most, <laughs> um, uh, was just was just um yeah it was wonderful because um um it it, it made it, it forced me to turn on part of the brain that i sort of you know put on hold for a long time so to say um and that's maybe a bit of the so on the one hand it's it's great that you know you get sent out on the next mission and you have a new sort of a job description so to say so yeah you have to um delve back into oh yeah what do i know about this um this issue or these topics and you know sharpen those skills um and at the same time you get a little lazy because um um you know you're dealing with topical stuff so uh things move along you're not in control of how they move along but you have to work with how they move to inform properly and and, and make pol prepare policy uh, properly or if you're in the hague make policy properly and um um and so and oftentimes you find that um there's not enough time to just sit back um and have a real discussion with people uh, and especially with people with different backgrounds or with different perspectives and that i think was the great thing about uh, about gmap that we you know we also had this we came from all over the globe so it was we were brought on all these different cultures but it was also people with um with different careers and and and, and you know uh professional backgrounds being brought together that helped for these different perspectives being put on whatever we were, it's something we were discussing. And I thought that was just very energizing and invigorating. Um, so that's, um, so that's also how very much how I look back on, on, on GMAP, that it, 
you know, it, it, it made me, it also made me aware that, oh, wow, it's very important, you know, to keep on reading up uh, um, and seeking these discussions, uh, however, in whatever way, uh, to make sure that you, you know, you, you, you remain sharp, so to say. And, you know, look at this. We're doing this podcast. I mean, it's wonderful. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, 20, it's true. It's 20 almost, years almost, on. Yeah. Almost 20 years on. And, and we're still in touch with each other. Um, I'm planning uh, a vacation uh, in, in America um, uh, this summer. Um, and I've already connected with a couple of the classmates. And uh, they were all like, oh, yeah, no. And we definitely have to meet up, you know. And that's just great, I think. So, yeah. Um um, and I definitely learned, uh, did, did learn skills or learned stuff about international relations um, and the way to look at them that I would not have in my toolkit if I hadn't done GMAP, actually. So, yeah, it's been very wor worthwhile. Great. Great. Maybe I, I wanted to ask you one, 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 one thing before we, we wrap up is I, I, uh, I have a sense that food plays a big role in your in your, <laughs> in your life and I, I i wanted to i wanted to test that with you and ask you like because it sounds like especially from netherlands i i guess you've you must have added significantly to your repertoire of cuisine from the uh, croquette and vending machine yeah. <laughs> and all these, oh gosh even though the vending machines yeah i know gosh well you know that the dutch love to claim indonesian cuisine as their own so um <laughs> so i'm very happy that we have at least that uh yeah it's true it's um um i personally well no actually there's some dutch food stuffs um that are um that are wonderful and the croquette really is a nice thing to eat uh, and the bitter ball uh, always does very well with whatever reception uh, i host um, <laughs> uh, bitter ball being uh, um a, a, the round version of the croquette <laughs> um, which you can eat which is usually served piping hot so that people actually bite and then <gasps> are like struggling to you know keep good face um, um uh, but uh, no when it comes to cuisines um yeah and, uh i'm i'm very happy to be here in asia actually because i love the asian cuisines um which, uh, we hear of course dim sum uh cantonese um is a wonderful uh, uh cuisine and hong kong is a wonderful i mean, actually i've been blessed to be, i've also been in um in tokyo which of course is the is really is the mecca uh of of of, of cuisines because first of all japanese cuisine is in my opinion the best there is um but you can eat anything any cuisine is available at high level in Tokyo. So we, um, yeah, and luckily my husband shares this passion for good food. So we spend a lot of time dining out. And here in Hong Kong too, um, as well, it's one of the few cities also in Asia or outside of Europe where there's lots of Michelin's, uh, Michelin starred restaurants. Um, so they're very proud of that. Um, so we make it a, uh, we, we, we make sure that we, um, you know, always find a birthday or an anniversary bars to celebrate in, a, in the Michelin starred restaurant. Um, and for a person, my personal favorite, well, is Japanese and number two would be the French cuisine. So I, I, I really am on both sides. <laughs> of the but, I, um, but I imagine yeah. you've suffered a little bit in the, um, the lack of the sort of diplomatic cocktail scene that, you know, since COVID, right? Because normally that would have been your you know, every night a different reception at a different embassy or something, right? And so now you're, you're home and <laughs> ordering in. It's horrible. No, 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 I can tell. Oh, no, this is, yeah, this is a very frustrating time for me. Yeah, so, um, yeah, no, especially because um, I have, have a cook here, um, and the Dutch are one of the very few countries that still, um, that still have their own residence. So I have a beautifully uh, furnished house, uh, that is ideal for hosting events, uh, receptions, dinners, lunches, you name it. And I can't do anything right oh. now. It's just, it's just, it's just horrible. And on top of which my cook can actually do good stuff. I mean, she <laughs> cooks well. I don't know. I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking GMAP reunion and, and Hong Kong. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, get, that would be get, a very good one. We can get in the country, but we'd all have to like quarantine at your house. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately they won't allow us to do that. So no. that's it. Uh, no, yeah, no, it's, the, the, so it's, yeah, it's horrible. And it's, it's, you're exactly right. Um, uh, I used to do, uh, well, I haven't done much anyway, 
um, because I've never been able to host foreign uh, guests because they could never come in. Uh, but yeah, part of what I you. I, I'm should be doing so to say is also hosting you know um, uh, working groups of people or ministers or whoever uh, uh, um, from from the Netherlands visiting Hong Kong and having them over um, to meet uh, you know new people or uh, their network so um, yeah this is total, very un unfortunate um, but no food is very important I think also food tells a lot about culture so I would say the reason why Dutch food is um, is not high on anybody's list um, <laughs> is that we didn't have any time for real good really good meals because we had to be back out in the fields uh, to plow or to uh, to harvest or whatever and build dikes to keep out the sea so you know it's, uh, <laughs> <That's a nice laughs> story. no time for food <laughs> <laughs> good. Good. i think we've really enjoyed this conversation and i just wanted to ask you Arin, if there's anything else you wanted to to say or share before before we before we wrap up no, I just, well, not, but I really want to say how wonderful this is. And I'm so glad this podcast exists and, 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 and it's just this wonderful way of, you know, connecting with the, uh, with the GMAP community. Um, it's just fun to do. And I, I already see this. Yeah, we're, we're way over one hour already. <laughs> so um, uh, that's how fast it goes. Um, it was really great fun to do. Um, and thank you for thinking of me uh, for this uh, podcast. It was, uh, yeah, really wonderful to participate. So, And good luck, obviously, with the future episodes as well. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out.